0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Through our message series, Soul Food, when a meal with Jesus was more than food, we'll unpack what Jesus has to teach us from the time He spent around the table. Here in the ordinary, everyday sharing of a meal, we'll discover who Jesus came for, what it takes to be with Him, and how you and I can be changed by His greatness My uh, senior year of high school, um, I lived with an entirely different family. My family were missionaries in the Middle East. We came home the summer before my senior year, and my parents decided to head back to the mission field, and I decided to stay and finish my senior year of high school, which meant I had to live somewhere. So I lived with uh, an entirely, some family friends of ours for my entire senior year. And in moving in with an entirely different family, one of the things that I had to learn was an entirely new set of rituals and practices in what that family did, right? They did things a little bit different than my family. And so I had to kind of adjust to their family rhythms. And one of the things, one of the rhythms that that family did was every Sunday after church, we were required to have lunch Together. So there were four teenagers in the home, including myself. So you can imagine how hectic and crazy the schedule was. But the steadfast rhythm that we always had is no matter what, no matter what happened during the week, we were going to go home after church and we were going to eat lunch together. And that's what we always did. And the, the father of this family, um, who was a good friends with my parents, uh, he was kind of witty. He kind of had a funny sense of humor. And so one of the things that he would often bring to our attention when we would gather to eat dinner together, is he would look at us from time to time and he would say, statistics say that families that eat together at least once a week, their kids are so, many, I can't remember the percentage, so many percentage points less likely to commit suicide. So you can thank me for saving your life. It's like, and he would do this regularly. Like it was like one of his standard jokes, um, which was funny at the time. What I actually came to realize is that he was actually right. Right, Research from the Family uh, Dinner Project has shown that regular family dinners lower the rates of substance abuse, teen pregnancy, depression, and actually increase kids' GPA and self-esteem. So there was something to the power of eating together as a family. And after all those years, that single rhythm and even that silly joke has just always stuck with me and reminded me of the incredible power of meals. Meals, eating together, are powerful. They're not only just powerful for us in regards to a family context, meals are actually incredibly powerful in our lives and community. Meals are often the ways we connect with others, develop deeper relationships. Meals often surround some of our biggest life events and cultural practices. Meals have an incredible power. Recently in our life group, we were reflecting just on memorable meals that we have had together. And it was incredible to hear just the stories from around my life group of what's taken place at meals. Proposals have taken place at meals. Family get-togethers have happened at meals. The extension of an invitation to women who've been trafficked on an Easter Sunday happened over a meal. There was all this incredible significance just in our little life group of how meals had played powerful roles within our life. Meals are pretty significant. And why do you think that is? Well, I think one of the reasons meals are so powerful is that meals are not just a transaction of food. Meals embody culture. They communicate and embody a culture. The meals you share as a family embody the culture of your family. They say something about who you are, how you connect, how you relate to one another. The meals we share within a community embody the culture of that community. They speak something to who we are. This is why we encourage our life groups to eat dinner regularly together. Meals often communicate our heritage, where we're from, the people that we identify with. And meals even communicate our larger, broader culture. Is it any surprise that in a culture that's only increased in speed and hurriedness and stress, that the number of meals that people eat by themselves have only increased in the last several decades? Meals naturally communicate and embody culture. And I don't think it can be overstated that meals are an incredibly important reality in the human experience. But meals aren't just significant for us. Meals were actually really important in the ministry of Jesus. If you look through the Gospels and you see Jesus in his ministry, you often see a lot of what he did around meals. One commentator on the Gospel of Luke notes that in that Gospel, Jesus is either on his way to a meal, at a meal, or just leaving a meal. It seems like wherever Jesus went, meals were something that he regularly engaged with. And I would argue this is actually on purpose. Consider this observation from Scholar Tim Chester, in his book, A Meal with Jesus, he notes in his introduction that three times in the Gospels, Jesus uses the phrase, the Son of Man came. The Son of Man was Jesus' favorite self-designation for himself, taken from the book of Daniel. And three times he uses this important phrase, noting something of why he came. The first one we find in Mark 10, 45, where he says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus later said, recorded in Luke 19, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And Jesus said this phrase one other time. You find it in Luke 7, where he says this, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. That last one doesn't quite seem to fit, does it? Like, it's kind of like that sesame, like one of these things is not like the other. Here's Chester's observation on these three statements of Jesus. He says this, the first two are statements of purpose. Why did Jesus come? He came to serve, to give his life as a ransom, to seek and save the lost. The third is a statement of method. How did Jesus come? He came eating and drinking. Jesus saw meals as so vitally important that he regularly engaged them and utilized them in his ministry and time here on earth. So why are meals so important? And what can we learn from them in the life of Jesus? Well, that's what we're going to explore over the next five weeks. For the next five weeks and leading up to Easter, we're going to dig into the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to look at scenes where Jesus strategically utilized meals in his ministry. And through that, we're going to see incredible realities of who Jesus is, of why he came, of what he was about, and even learn how we can utilize meals in our own life, and follow Jesus' example as we seek to embody his culture to the world around us. So with that said, we're going to jump into our first meal today in Luke chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses five, or 27 through 32. So if you're in your Bible, I'm going to read the passage to, uh, entirely, and then we're going to work our way through it and kind of break it down. So Luke 5, starting in verse 27, Luke writes this, after this, he Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Three things that I want to draw your attention to this morning in this first meal that we see Jesus engage here in Luke chapter 5. The first thing that we see, I think that we learn about the nature of Jesus, is that Jesus finds and calls sinners. Let me unpack a little bit of what I mean by that. What we see in the text is Jesus singles out a man named Levi, Actually, it says that Jesus went out and saw. That word saw is the idea of observed or paid attention to. It's not the idea of you going along and you glance out the side of your eye. Oh, that guy. No, Jesus was actually paying attention. He noticed this man, Levi. Now, what's unique about this man, Levi? Well, the tax notes that he was a tax collector. So um, in Jesus's day in Israel, Israel was occupied by Rome and Rome extorted great taxes out of the citizens that were a part of its empire. One of the main ways that they would do that is when they took over a region, they would institute people from within that region to help them in collecting taxes. So oftentimes what they would do is set up a tax booth that people would have to go to, often if they traveled from city to city or for other different reasons, and they would have to pay taxes to the city of Rome, often pretty exorbitant taxes. Levi is one of the guys working for Rome. He's a kind of underling tax collector who likely worked at one of these tax booths. But what's interesting about Levi is that Levi is Jewish. His name is Jewish, right? I mean, it's a derivative from the tribe of Levi or the Levites who are the priestly class in Jewish society. But it seems like Levi had given up that occupation instead to become a tax collector. Tax collectors were viewed in Jesus' day by their fellow Jews as cultural compromisers, right? That Jews believed that God had given them the promised land that they were meant to occupy and to keep pure. But Rome had come in and invaded. And this bothered the Jewish sentiment that these impure Gentiles had somehow brought disdain upon the land that God had promised to his people. And so they hated Rome. They wanted them out of there. They didn't want to have anything to do with them. But Levi and his fellow tax collectors, they were seen as even a bigger problem because they were the Jews that sided with Rome. In many people's minds, Levi's working for the enemy. He's the bad guy. Not only that, tax collectors were known to exploit their fellow Jews. Part of the way they made their profit is they would charge their rates at a higher rate, so they would collect some for Rome and then charge at a higher rate so that they could gather profits for themselves. And often they were known to extort people. Hey, you want me to pay your taxes to Rome for you? You got to pay this percentage above what those taxes are so that I'll do it. So tax collectors in this society, they're like the lowlifes. They're the people nobody respects. They're the people running businesses. You're like, that feels a little bit sketchy, right? They're not liked. They're not respected. And that's all we know about Levi at this point. But what we also note is that Jesus notices this guy and calls him to be his disciple. New Testament scholar Daryl Bach says this. He says, it's not an accident that Jesus selects Levi. Jesus shows the type of person to whom he wishes to minister and to whom he wishes to show God's way. Jesus in the scene is acting as a Jewish rabbi, a very common practice. And Jewish rabbis in Jesus's day would have disciples. They would have men that would apprentice to them to learn their way of life and their teaching. But what's unique about Jesus is, in Jesus's day, if you wanted to become a disciple of a rabbi, you had to essentially apply to that rabbi. You had to go to the rabbi and say, I want to be your disciple. And the rabbi would interview you just like for a job and say, well, let's see if you have it, if you could actually adopt my way of teaching and do that. And then he would make make a decision. Jesus, though, flips the whole system on its head. Instead of people applying to Jesus, Jesus seems to go out and just call people to follow him. No application needed. He just walks up to Levi and says, hey, Levi, follow me. And not only that, he's observed Levi. He's seen something about him and then calls him to follow and to become his apprentice. What's incredible in this scene is that Jesus calls someone who's a tax collector, right? The disreputable person of his day to be his disciple. If we were to put this into our modern context, right? This might be Jesus walking up to the owner of the strip club or the check cashing store or the weed dispensary and saying, hey, you, I want you to come become my disciple, right? We would be like, that guy? You sure you want that guy? Like, don't you know what he does? Like, yeah, that business might be legal, but barely. Like, I don't, I don't know if you want him on your team, Jesus. But this is exactly the person that Jesus seems to be looking for. And he comes up to Matthew, and he gives him this simple call. Follow me. An invitation to discipleship. Jesus' call to Matthew is an all-in call. He's inviting him to turn from his way of life and to begin to embrace Jesus' teaching and his way of life, to radically change the way he's moving in order to follow Jesus. Jesus' call is all in, right? There's no half way for Matthew. The call that Jesus gives him is, hey, if you're going to follow me, that means you're not going to continue in the way of life that you're this is, also, all, this is always the nature of the call of discipleship in the Gospels. Jesus' call to follow him is an all in call. I think too often we've conflated the call of discipleship in our culture with an easy believism. Easy believism says that I can trust in Jesus, but I can live my life on my own terms, that I can do and continue to do what I want. And what we see time and again in Jesus is that is just not simply what he calls people to do. Jesus calls in his call of following him for nothing less than an all out surrender of our lives to his word and his ways, no matter the cost. It's an all in call. You're going to follow me? You can't live your life, your terms. Are you going to follow on my terms? The call of discipleship in the Gospels is a high and intense call. But what we see here, and the good news is, that Jesus doesn't exclude anyone from that call. That there is no one that Jesus looks at and says, sorry, you can't follow me. You've done too much. No, the nature and grace of Jesus is that, yes, he calls us to a high calling, but he makes that calling available to everyone, no matter your background. No matter where you're at today, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've struggled, no matter what part of your heart that you've kept hidden from others because you don't want to know that shame, Jesus looks at you and says, you can still follow me. That does not exclude you from being able to learn my ways and my word. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus finds Sinners, and he calls them to follow him. And what's incredible is that Matthew shows us what the proper response to Jesus' call is. He leaves everything, verse 28, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Let's be clear. Matthew isn't going back to his job at this point. Matthew will never collect taxes again. His job's in such the rain that when Jesus says, hey, you gotta start coming my way, he's gotta give it up. That's a pretty high cost. He doesn't just figure out, oh, how am I going to integrate Jesus into my sketchy business? Like, how am I going to just kind of try to do this a little bit more Christian? No, Matthew shows that true disciples of Jesus turn and begin to learn and follow him. It's a high call and a high cost. But man, what you get is infinite. So he chooses to follow Jesus. Jesus. And I think in many ways he shows us what faith is. Faith is a response to the call of Jesus to trust him with our whole lives and to obey him in life over everything else. Faith is surrendering to Jesus and ordering my life around his word and his ways. Jesus finds and calls sinners, and by God's grace, they respond. But this isn't where the story stops. Matthew responds not only by following Jesus, but in another way as well. Look at verse 29. And Levi, I'm going to stop and apologize. Levi is Matthew's other name. So in the Gospel of Matthew, you learn that Matthew's name is both Levi and Matthew, kind of like Peter, Simon, and Peter. So if I keep going back between Levi and Matthew, it's because I can't get my brain to switch. Like, I've just worked it so hard. So when I say Matthew, I mean Levi. It's, It's synonymous, right? It's the same person. He just has two names. So sorry about that. So Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. So Matthew, in response to Jesus' call disciples, like, man, I want my friends to know about this guy. So he decides to throw Jesus a banging party. He's like, I'm going to get as many people as I can. We're going to get together so they can interact and meet this Jesus. And what we see is that Jesus goes to the party. Jesus shows up. You see, Jesus not only finds sinners, Jesus feasts with sinners, meaning Jesus actually enters into relationship with them. So what we have in this scene is we don't just have a tax collector. We have a whole group of them and their friends. And let's be clear, if you're associating with tax collectors in Jewish society, you don't have a great reputation either, right? You're on the margins. You're like, eh, that's the sketchy people. And yet they're gathered together and Jesus comes to them. And not only does Jesus come to them, he sits down and he eats with them. This idea of reclining at the table is the idea of, table fellowship. In their day, meals were highly important. To eat together displayed a certain level of intimacy, a certain level of connection, a certain level of relationship. You didn't just eat with everybody. So to actually sit down, recline at a table, and eat a meal together is a highly relational act. And in many ways, eating dinner together is a highly relational act for us as well, right? When you invite someone over to your house for dinner It's because you either have a relationship or want to pursue a relationship with someone. If you want to have a meal with someone who you're not that interested in a relationship, maybe for your work, maybe someone who's an acquaintance, what do you do? You meet at a restaurant. Why? Because it's much easier to leave a restaurant than kick someone out of your house. (laughs) But when you invite someone to dinner, there's a certain level of, oh, relational connection, pursuit acceptance, to invite them into your home. So for Jesus to step in and eat with these guys is a step of relationship. It's an engagement. It shows us that Jesus is willing to enter into relationship with the lowest people of Jewish society at the time. You could pin it this way, Jesus went to parties. That's what he did. He showed up at meals with parties with the people that other people would often overlook. He was willing to enter the spaces and places that the culture would have deemed unclean and compromised. That's what we mean by sinners. These are the people the culture looks at and says, like, uh, you shouldn't eat with them. Contrast for a moment the reality of Jesus with what we've just seen over the last month in our study of Jonah. Right? God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, and Jonah's like, I'm out. Like, I have no interest in doing that. You're gonna have to put me into a whale and spit me out for me to actually go there. And even when I go there, I'm angry about it. Jesus is the opposite. Jesus not only shows up, Jesus wants to sit down and have a dinner with these guys. Like that's how high his relational pursuit is of them. That the culture he creates around himself is he looks at the people everyone else wouldn't look at and he sits down to actually eat with them. And this causes quite a stir among a certain group of people, especially a group of religious leaders, right? And here kind of is where we find the heart of the lesson in this passage. Look at verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, who are the Pharisees, right? That's a great question to ask. The Pharisees are a highly influential sect in Jewish culture in that day. They weren't all necessarily like leaders. They were just a sect. Some of them were leaders, some of them weren't. Some of them had influence, some didn't. But their ideas, what Pharisees were marked by were a few different things. One, they were marked by a strict observance to the Jewish law based on the oral traditions of the rabbis. They not only sought to observe the law, but they actually enacted laws out of the oral tradition on top of the laws to ensure that they could strictly obey the laws. So these guys are like, we follow the rules to the T, even beyond the rules to make sure we're not even close to not following the rules. The second thing that marked the Pharisees as a religious sect was they felt that purity was essential for Israel to experience deliverance from Rome. They felt like when Israel was actually pure that God would then send his Messiah and they would experience deliverance from Roman occupation. In the Jewish day, they are a very conservative movement. They saw the compromise from their Jew, a fellow brother, a Jewish brothers and sisters with Rome around them, and they pulled back and said, no, 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 we can't do that. We're going to observe the law strictly, and we're going to pursue purity at all costs. So it's these guys and their scribes who come, and they grumble against Jesus. And that idea of grumble is like a strong emotional reaction, right? This isn't just like, oh, I'm curious. This is like, this dude's messing things up. Like, what is he actually doing? And notice who they grumble to. Do they grumble to Jesus? No, they grumble at his disciples. Well, that's interesting. I think it's telling, right? I mean, in many ways, the Pharisees enact a lot of how we act as humans. When we have a problem with someone, do we go to that person? No, we go to the other person that's close to that person, and then we lodge a complaint. Right? Like, this is the essence, oftentimes, unfortunately, of our humanity. We complain to someone else instead of going to the source. And that's what they do. And they bring this charge. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And in this question, there's two things that I want you to notice. First, notice the label that they put on the people that Jesus is eating with. Notice earlier when Luke describes this party, he says that Jesus is with tax collectors and others. But how do the Pharisees characterize them? Why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? They take the others and they put a label on them. And what do they say by that label? Listen, they're the impure ones, we're not. You see, all of us in our sinfulness, we tend to categorize other people. We all have people in our mind that we think, they're not the best people. And what we tend to do is we put them in categories so we can feel better about ourselves. That's what the Pharisees do here. These people that are associating with tax collectors, these lowlifes, they're the sinners. We're not. We don't eat with those people. Labeling is often the way we draw lines to feel better about ourselves. And the Pharisees are bothered that Jesus would actually and his disciples would eat with these people. And part of that is because of their radical worldview and their idea of purity. For the Pharisees, their idea is if we fellowship with these people, these sinners, we will be tainted. Our holiness and separateness will be compromised. Therefore, we must stay separate. And if these people want to experience the way of salvation, if they want to experience relationship with us, well, then they need to repent first, and then we can engage in relationship. You see, even by the question and the label, what the Pharisees show is that they believe repentance was necessary for relationship to happen. But look how Jesus responds. And Jesus answered them, those who are well... Have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, Jesus, in responding to this Pharisee's accusation, one, he acts like the adult in the room and actually talks to them, right? Time and again, we see Jesus exemplify emotional health in conflict by not shying away and going to someone else, but actually dealing with that group or that person head on. And Jesus engages them and essentially in his response wants to say, you want to know why I do that? Because I'm on a mission here and part of the meals that I engage is part of that larger mission. Jesus begins by responding like he normally does with this beautiful illustration, right? It's those who are well, have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Here's Jesus's, my translation of Jesus' words, doctors engage sick people. Like imagine if you got really, really sick, like, like one of those just like, you just felt terrible, miserable, sick. And you're just like, I don't know what's going on, I gotta figure out some way to get better. So you call up your doctor, you schedule an appointment, All right, you you go to the waiting room, you sit down, the nurse comes, checks you in, you sit down in the waiting room, you wait for the doctor to call you back. The nurse comes out a few minutes later, she comes up to you and she's like, hey, can you just tell me like what your symptoms are? What's going on? You're like, man, I've had a headache for days, I'm exhausted, I can't breathe very well, I'm snotting up the wazoo, like I just can't, like I can't even make it through most of the day right now. She's like, okay, let, let me go talk to the doctor, we'll be with you back in a few minutes. And so you're just sitting there miserable, feeling terrible. And, uh, and a few minutes later, the nurse comes back out and says, I'm sorry, we can't do anything for you. You're like, uh, why, like, that's why I'm here. She's like, well, the doctor actually doesn't see sick people. You'd be like, well, what kind of doctor is that? Like, isn't that the nature of the doctor that they should engage sick people? Like, isn't this, I mean, this was one of the most amazing things through me in COVID, that so many of our medical care professionals were willing to risk themselves at times in order to serve those that were suffering and sick. It's the nature of the call of a doctor that you surround yourself with sick people. That's what the job is. That's what you do. And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm the spiritual doctor. I'm the one who's here to bring spiritual healing for the entire world. So wouldn't I be around sick people? Like, isn't that who you should expect me to be around? We wouldn't expect the doctor to not be around sick people. Wouldn't we expect the Savior of the world to actually be around sinners? To be the ones who are suffering from sin? And So he challenges them and reminds them, my mission is to save. And because my mission is to save, I'm found exactly where I'm supposed to be. And he makes his mission even clearer by kind of drawing out the point from his illustration. Here's with 32, I have not come to call the righteous. Notice what he says, I'm not here for those that are well. That's not my purpose. Why have I come? I've come to call sinners to repentance. You see, Jesus wants to remind us he's here for a much deeper reality that humanity is plagued by our sin and our sin has cut us off from our God and therefore we do not experience the life that he created us created for us and the goodness and flourishing that he designed us for because of our sin but Jesus is the good physician that comes to heal our spiritual sickness through his ministry and ultimately through his death and resurrection that's why he's here to help sick people but he also, in this phrase, offers a sudden subtle challenge to them and to each one of us. And it's simply this, that you can't receive what he has to offer if you don't think you're sick. Like imagine, go back to the waiting room. Imagine the doctor does call you into the waiting room and he sits you down and you share your symptoms and the doctor looks at you and he says, actually, this is bad. I think you have a life-threatening condition. But the good news is we can give you something that will actually help to heal you. And so here's what you need to do, right? You need to have this surgery. You need to take this medicine. You need to go through this practice. And if you do that, you'll be okay. You will get better. And imagine in that moment, if you sat and looked at the doctor and you said, no, thanks, I think I'm fine. I mean, that's the essence of the Pharisees, right? Like, well, I don't need you. And Jesus' point isn't saying, you guys are righteous and they're not. Jesus' point is, you're all sick, and if you don't recognize that, you're not going to receive the healing that I have to offer, Again, here's Bach, comes in and helps us. He says, the point is not that the Pharisees are righteous already so that Jesus will leave them alone, but that they are not open to their own need of a physician so he cannot appeal to them or can he heal them. See, Jesus is challenging to say, do you recognize your sickness? I'm here to help. I'm here to save. I'm here to rescue. That's who I came for. But until you recognize your need for me, and you're going to stay sick, And Jesus not only challenges them, he invites them into his reality. He invites them to join him in his mission of bringing salvation to the world. That idea where Jesus says, I've not come to call, that verb tense in the Greek is in the perfect tense. You're like, oh, what does that mean? Nerd out, right? But what it means is in that verb tense, it means an action that's taken place that then continues on. So Jesus is saying, I haven't come to do this. I've come to call sinners to repentance, and that's meant to continue. So if you'll recognize your need for me, be healed by me, you can join me in creating the sort of culture that brings healing to those that are sick, that brings salvation to those who are plagued with sin. Jesus' is response to the Pharisees is both a rebuke and an invitation at the same time. Will you follow me like Matthew did, and will you join me in my mission? And that question lingers over the text, but we see Jesus's purpose. And in doing so, I think we see part of our purpose that we're called to for those of us that follow Jesus. Jesus. You see, I think all these things that we see, right, that Jesus finds sinners, he feasts with sinners, that he seeks to fulfill his mission in this table, shows us that following Jesus means feasting with sinners. And by feasting, I mean fellowshipping, engaging, pursuing relationship. That the nature of Jesus is to show grace to everyone because everyone is plagued with sin. And that Jesus pursues relationship to invite people to turn from their sin and follow him just like he does Levi in the text. The culture that Jesus creates through his practice of meals and through his challenge of the Pharisees is that he shows that God is a God of grace. And the meal that Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners, to borrow the phrase from Chester's book, which I think is a brilliant phrase in this, is enacted grace. It's grace in action. Jesus's willingness to eat with those the world had rejected shows that our God has an open invitation of relationship to everyone. And not just those that the world overlooks, even the self-righteous Pharisees. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter if you think you're better than other people or worse than other people. It doesn't matter if you're self-righteous or self-loathing. All of us are plagued with sin. And Jesus opens an invitation for everyone to experience his grace and forgiveness. And the way he displays the openness of that invitation is by being willing to eat and fellowship with the people that the world would have turned away from. Jesus prioritizes relationship over judgment and separation. And he's willing to engage relationally with these people. You see, Jesus is trying to show the Pharisees a different level of holiness, where they looked at these people and said, you're going to taint us with our sin. You're going to mess it up. You're going to make us impure. Jesus, as the only righteous one of God, the Son of God, and comes and says, no, I'm so perfectly holy that I'm not going to be tainted by sin. In fact, when I fellowship with these people, when I eat with these people, when I enjoy relationship with them, they'll begin to see the holiness and truth of God and the grace of God will be expended to them where they can turn and experience the life God offers to them. Jesus rejects separation and instead engages relationship so these people can see the truth of who God is and be invited into his reality. Jesus doesn't just teach grace. He demonstrates it by who he eats with, by who he's willing to have a relationship with, by who he's willing to pursue. Grace becomes powerful when it's made visible and Jesus makes it visible by the meals that he eats and the people that he eats them with. That's the thing. Jesus feasts with sinners. And in doing so, he creates a culture that invites everyone, no matter where they're from, to experience the grace of God and begin a new life in Jesus if they will only trust and follow him. And we're invited into that same reality to be people who create a culture of enacted grace where grace is put into action. And how do we do that? How, How do we become a people of enacted grace? three quick things that I want to close with just to help you think through how we can become a people of grace and follow Jesus' example of feasting with sinners. One, we have to embrace the call to follow Jesus. You cannot extend grace unless you've experienced grace. And like Levi, we must hear the grace that is offered to us by Jesus, who looks at us no matter where we come from and says, God loves you he's made a way to have a relationship with him, all you have to do is trust in me because I've come to die for you, to pay the penalty for your sin and your turning from God. And not only that, I didn't just die, I also rose from the dead so that you could have access to the Holy Spirit, so that you could be saved, so that you could begin to live that new life that God has for you right now and on into eternity. What what Jesus offers to Matthew, he offers to each one of us, which is God's grace experienced when we trust in him. And if we're to be a people of grace? It starts by recognizing that God has shown us grace. Grace simply means unmerited favor, getting something that you don't deserve. And if you've had salvation in Jesus Christ, you didn't deserve it. There is not one part of your life, one part of your heart, not one action that you did that somehow earned you God's favor. God showed you favor despite your sin. And until you realize that, you won't extend grace because you know what you'll do? You'll hold on to your self-righteousness. You'll hold on to the part of you that says, I'm not that bad. I'm not with those people. So you've got to start first by embracing and receiving the grace God offers. And in doing so, you've got to confess your tendency towards self-righteousness. That all of us have a little Pharisee in our heart. We have a little bit where we think, if I interact with them, that's not me. I'm better than those people. All of us have a tendency towards separatism and self-righteousness. Man, I was confronted with this several years ago. I remember just seeing my own heart and the wickedness that lies within my life. I was pastoring at another church and my worship pastor came to me one day and he said, hey, Jacob, I'm just, I really just feel like I have a heart to want to minister and to care for and show love and build relationship with the LGBTQ community. And he said, I really would like to go down and serve at the gay pride parade that's coming up in a couple months. And so I just wanted to talk to you about that. And he's like, I just want to go down and clean up the streets and hand out water and you know just hope to just build some relationship with a community that's often felt marginalized and judged and ostracized from the church. And, um, and so I just, you know, I'd like to go down there and serve. And I'll confess, in my Pharisaical pride, I was like, I don't know if you can do that. Right? It was like all the thoughts went through my head. Like, well, what if people see you? They'll think maybe our church affirms sin. What if our larger church that planted our campus finds out? Maybe they'll be mad. And he's like real clear, like, hey, I'm not going to march in the parade. I'm just going to serve and try to love and build a relationship. Right? But like all these things stirred up in me. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And at some point I'm like oh, I'm a Pharisee. I mean, I've shared with you guys, I've had my own struggle with sexual brokenness, and here I am, like, well, these people aren't worthy of a relationship. Like, I'm somehow better. God just, like, blasted me. Like, I think maybe I love those people too. I think I don't love all people. I don't think I want to build relationships and offer grace and extend to... And I had to confess before the Lord... I'm a self-righteous jerk because we've all got a little Pharisee in us and until we recognize I don't deserve anything before God but he saved me and then how can I not pursue relationship with others? You see, those that embrace and experience God's grace will seek to enact it. They'll seek to put that grace in practice by pursuing relationship. They'll prioritize relationship with people over separation and judgment. It doesn't mean we have to compromise truth. Jesus doesn't compromise truth. He makes it clear. He's come to call sinners to repentance. But he's willing to pursue relationship with them so that they can know his love and be invited to turn from their sin and follow Jesus. He's not afraid of being tainted. He's more willing to pursue the relationship so he can invite repentance from all people. This is what Bach says. Jesus shows that his mission is not accomplished by separatism. Jesus will not wait for sinners. He will seek them out. He will accept them as persons, but he will challenge sinners to meet with God who can bind up wounds and bring them back to reality. And what Jesus reminds us is we're called to follow his example. If he would feast with us, how can we cut people off from the priority of relationship who we might be able to extend grace to. So where, God, where might God be calling us to an extended invitation of grace? Who's someone maybe you need to consider sharing a meal with? Have you recognized the grace God has shown you? Have you confessed your tendency to self-righteousness? If you have, then let's then seek to extend grace to all those people who needed it just as much as we did. There aren't sinners separate from us. We are all sinners, but thankfully we have a Savior who saves sinful people like you and me. And so if God would extend his grace to us, let's be a people of grace in the culture that we create. Let's feast with sinners. But if we're gonna do that, the first place we have to go is going back and reminding ourselves that our God is a grace, a God of grace, and he offers forgiveness to each one of us. And so maybe you're sitting here and you know, you know that part of your heart that you've struggled with. You know that self-righteousness, that judgment that you feel. Man, Jesus is inviting the self-righteous just as much as those on the outskirts to confess and follow him. And he has grace and forgiveness for each one of us. So in a moment, I'm just going to pray for us. And as we do, I I pray, I pray that you would experience in this moment the truth of the grace of God that's offered in Jesus Christ. Whether you trust him for the first time or you trust him for the millionth time, that you would root your righteousness in what Jesus has done, not what you've done. And be reminded that you're saved in him. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for being a God of grace. Thank you for loving us thank you for being the sort of God that would pursue relationship with us. Jesus, you could have stayed in heaven. You could have separated yourself from us for eternity because we turned our back on you, but you didn't. You came to this earth. You became a human being. And not only that, you showed us what grace looks like by the way your willingness to eat with those that the world had turned their back on. And you showed us that God doesn't turn his back on us. He invites each one of us to follow and to experience a relationship with him. So we thank you for that, Jesus. I pray if there's anyone in this room who hasn't experienced your grace, that your Holy Spirit would just pursue them right now. But God, we also confess our tendency towards self-righteousness, to put ourselves above others. Help us to realize, God, the the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Every single one of us is in equal need of your grace. God, I know we won't extend grace until we've experienced it. So even as we sing this song, would you just hearken us back to that reality of your forgiveness? Would you remind us of your grace and your love? Would you deepen our faith in what you've provided for us in Christ, we pray. We love you and ask these things in your holy and precious name.